بسم الله الرحمن الرحیم نحمده و نسلی على رسوله الكریم We express, extend our prayers and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we seek blessings upon the Prophet, peace be upon him. Uh, Sabrine is asking for us to make a dua or a miracle for something that is going on in her world. She told me what it is, but I won't share what the details, what the details are. So please grant that she is getting what this cousin is seeking. Okay, so we were looking at further ayat from Surat An-Nisa, Surah 4, today on Thursday, April 6th. We do have class, by the way, all through next week, inshallah, except for Thursday of next week. Next for Thursday, we go back to not having class. But here we were continuing to explore the issue I'm having computer issues. The issue of repentance. We had an extensive discussion, further discussion yesterday about repentance. And then from there, we spoke about just the nature of society. How is it that societies degrade to the point that they degrade the humans in society? And that brings us to today's ayahs. And we are... Um, the rest of Ayah's 20 or 19 and then getting into 20. So once again, somebody let me know. You can see my screen. Yes, yes, yes. Any gesture? Yeah, good. Okay. So once again, if you want to, whoops, wrong eye, previous eye. It is not lawful for you. They should forcibly take women as inheritance. We spoke about that. And do not hold on to them so that you may take back of some what you, of what you have given them unless they commit some sort of shameful act. Live with them in a dignified, recognizable, upright manner. If you dislike them, it is likely that you dislike something. Allah has placed a lot of good in it. So that we all spoke about. Now, I 20, if you want to take a wife in place of the one you have, this is the thing, do not take back any of the wealth that you have given to her, even if you gave her a lot of wealth. Would you take it through slander and clear sins? This one is also very straightforward. If you're in a situation where you like this other person better than that person, here, it's not saying don't do that. Here, it is saying don't take any of the wealth that you gave her. So, again, I think this is straightforward for us. But what would be the connection to this point about slandering her? Any thoughts? Where would slander fit into this picture of someone who's trying to trade spouses? I don't want this one anymore. I want this one. Silence. So this is also a common part of the behavior. 
This you find, especially in the context of people who have affairs. Part of the reason why the punishment of affairs is of zina is so serious is that it's not just the act. Often there is extensive slander that is part of the process for people to cover their tracks. And so let's say we have someone who is married to somebody and then they start developing feelings for someone else. You know, it's already a wrong path they're going down. But technically they haven't done anything wrong yet. They've had, you know, wrong thoughts. But then let's say they turn the wrong thoughts into action to the point that now they're pursuing one wife and preparing to uh, divorce the other wife. And this obviously goes in both directions. Often, part of the process is to start slandering the one you're trying to turn away from. So, straightforward point. Any questions about this ayah? This ayah, I think, is very, very straightforward. The point I'm adding is it's not merely the fact of someone choosing one wife or the other, or one wife to replace another. Uh, they will often justify it by way of slander. How can you take any of the wealth back when you have had access to each other and you've made these commitments to each other, this mithak, re-emphasizing the point, but apparently this is something that common that it is in the Quran. This, the closest, thing, another common thing that I've been touching on is this very common thing I've had in the last couple of, in the last year, is where you'll have a family of wealth and somebody marries into that family and they even give some some wealth to the new spouse but then they decide for whatever reason that that the the son-in-law or this daughter-in-law does not fulfill what they want and so then they start they start pushing her out the out of the family and they try to get their wealth back it's a very, very devious thing. And so you made a commitment to each other. How can you do this? It's uh, a strong commitment. Okay. More rules that are pretty straightforward for all of us. Do not marry those whom your fathers had married. Except what is past. It is in indeed shameful and detestable. It's evil practice. Here, I don't have much to add for our discussions. I think this is all very, very straightforward, especially in our contemporary culture. Then we have a long list of those whom are prohibited for you. So you're not allowed to marry your mom, okay? Not allowed to marry your daughter, your sister, in Urdu, your, uh, your popos, your khalas. Yeah. The daughters of your brothers, daughters of your sisters. I think this is all straightforward, but it is fascinating that it has to be laid out. Your mothers who suckled you, your, the wet nurses who suckled you, your sisters in that form, the mothers of your wives, your stepdaughters under your care who are born of your wives with whom you've consummated the wedding, the, the marriage. Yeah. If you have not, then it's okay. The wives of your sons from your loins and that you combine two sisters in wedlock and what surely has passed. Okay, any questions about all of those prohibitions? Again, I think for our 
cultural sensitivities, that's all very, very straightforward. But I still think it's fascinating that it did have to be laid out, you know, for, for generations. I-24, you also cannot marry anybody who's already married. But what about this one? The people that whom your right hands possessed. Any thoughts about this concept that comes up throughout the Quran? Looks like everybody is in exhausted iftar mode or multitasking. Assalamualaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. How are you doing? Good, alhamdulillah. How are you? Alhamdulillah, rabbil alameen. I don't think so. Like now, like there is kind of like slave anymore, right? So like, well, you know, like like back then, there is still like modern slave. So like there, there will be like no concept like this. Maybe. Uh, uh, probably. I'm guessing. Do you think they are? Uh, there's definitely a lot of slavery in the world, yes. I mean, like modern slavery, yes, but like it's, you would not possess anyone like in Islamic law, I guess, right? Maybe. Like under the umbrella of Islamic law. Meaning, I hope not, but maybe. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying I hope not, you know. But yeah, there's a lot of slavery in the world. Uh, but even how do we reconcile this? That a man has access to a slave woman. What is that saying? So what is the context when you usually have this type of slave woman? Often it's conquest in terms of war. This was a, a common practice at that time that uh, the women of the opposing tribes then become your concubines. So this is a question that I get very, uh, no, not very frequently, but not uncommonly for which I say, I don't really have an answer for you, except uh, to say that it may be that men have all commonly that much difficulty controlling their appetites. And it may be that this is allowed as a way to demoralize the side that you're fighting, possibly, or and or that it is that hard for many men to control their appetites. When you have a woman uh, of that level of subjugation to you. Not the same thing, but still making the same point is how often, uh, Jewel, yes, how often you hear these similar types of stories in Hollywood when you have a film director that has absolute control and then has affairs with actresses that are working for them. Anyway, this is a point I want to raise for your consideration, exploration. It has been written by Allah for you. All women except these have been permitted for you to seek marriage through your wealth, binding yourself in marriage, not only for lust. This is also looked at as one of the refutations for muta'a marriage. So muta'a marriage, which is literally a marriage for enjoyment, 
which is kind of funny if you think about what it's saying about regular marriage. But the the point here is that the idea of mutah marriage, these temporary marriages, is for like a week or a month or six months, um, only for the purposes of 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 lust. Here, it's your marriage is being looked at as something bigger and serious. Okay. So those whose companies you have enjoyed, give them their, their marriage gift. There's no sin on you. What you both agree upon after that, Allah is all knowing, all wise. Most of it is very straightforward. No questions, thoughts, reflections. Looks like we're going to go through a lot of eyes today then at this speed. If one cannot afford to marry the free Muslim women, then marry of those, then he may marry the one you people own. Yes. So then you can marry someone whom your right hands possess of believing women. Allah knows your faith. All of you belong to one another, but you should marry them with the permission of their guardians. Give them their marriage gift in a fair manner that they may live in the protection of wedlock rather than be, you know, the subject of unfettered lust or secret love affairs. So even in the context of those women's concubines, bonds, women, and such, the recommendation is still marriage. <clears throat> if they become guilty of an immoral conduct uh, after they've entered the well doc, they'll have half the penalty to which free women are liable. So this relaxation is for those of you who fear to fall into sin by remaining unmarried if you persevere it is better for you okay well, let's forgive and compassionate again all of this is probably not relevant to most of our lives and let us continue allah intends through this quran you read Allah to make clear for you guidance for you okay, through the way of those who have passed before you and to turn graciously towards you, Allah is all-knowing wise. End of a section. But the point being that this is being mentioned over and over again. Allah intends to give us guidance. Allah intends to turn to us. So putting this together, a third point, Allah intends to give us guidance. Allah intends to make things easy for us. And this is supporting the point that people are innately weak. Yeah. So what we're saying now is the goal to look at the lens through which to look at sharia is that it is making my life easier. Again, most of what we've covered in the last five, 10 minutes is, is not gonna be relevant for most of us, but all of these rulings, the inherent purpose is to make my life easier. So now take a moment for yourself and imagine how you imagine Islamic law. And this is a point I've already made quite a few times that the essential purpose of Islamic law in guiding you to Allah to give you relief is to make your life easier. Do you truly innately believe that? Because that is a choice. 
So now the topic begins to change. We're going to have a little bit more of marriage, but now we're going to be shifting a little bit. More of focus on wealth. Do not devour each other's properties by false means unless it is a trade conducted with your mutual consent. Do not kill one another. Indeed, Allah has been very merciful to you. Now, when we look at such and such ayah, whoever does this out of aggression, we shall cast him into a fire. This is easy for Allah. Again, isn't this obvious? It's a tough crowd today. Very hard to getting any any response. Isn't this obvious in the sense that we are not supposed to do this? Here Allah is speaking about believer to believer. Ahant. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, forgive the music in the background, but um, can you hear me well? Uh, yeah, mashallah. Wa alaikum assalam. Okay. Um, I guess I had a comment about your earlier point. If, you know, uh, what these ayahs are, are pointing to is, is, to, is to ask us, you know, whether or not we, are we truly innately believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is trying to make life easier. Do you think that when people like look at this like discourse in their mind, automatically like goes to, oh, like you know, like this goes against societal norms, or this like like uh, goes against the certain like civilizational values like of like our time now, etc. Mm -hmm. Do you think their intention on that analysis is not really focused on like the way life operates, but really focused on the you know, on themselves? Like, do you think that comes from a certain amount of like selfishness. Um, I think I understand. I think most of it is not selfishness. Uh, I think where people struggle, one group of people struggle because they've already experienced or they've uh, witnessed abuse. So much of the discussion for our purposes for the first 20 some eyes has been gender related. And uh, if we were to ask, you know, the, the three women in this class, but, you know, anyone, have they experienced any sort of gender-related uh, aggression? Uh, they all probably have. And, and so I think one aspect is that it is natural to, to feel uh, concerns about many of the ayahs uh, that are laying out things on gender, gender lines. And then, like your point, uh, whether we call it civilizational or cultural norms, uh, deen by its nature, and this is every religion, is going to be swimming upstream. You know, and so I'm at a Catholic university, and it's a very common conversation that I have with the priests that, you know, the general thrust of American society that has a giant population of Catholics to the point that I think two-thirds of the Supreme Court is Catholic, still speak of American society as not friendly to Catholicism, to Catholic norms, Catholic beliefs, Catholic morality, all that stuff. This is every religion. So I think there will, there will be some cultural uh, um, tension. And then on top of that, I do think for a lot of people, there's just, okay, how do I explain this to somebody else? I may not have an issue with this. I may not have an issue with the prophet, peace be upon him, being married to Aisha at such a young age, but how do I explain it to someone else? I think those are the big, uh, the big uh, realms where people struggle. What do you think? No, I, 
that I agree. I guess a lot of your discourse, especially in the first part of this like surah, is to try to like to get us to see what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is is really saying. But I guess my next question will be for the people who can't you know read the Quran like that or interpret it in the way it's supposed to be interpreted. Um, can you say that, you know, like which parts of the, the Quran Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks to ease the trauma of women in terms of the gender of uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, oppression that they face, it, uh, uh, to ease the minds of people who are swimming like upstream? Mm-hmm. Because it seems, you know, at least in my ear, a lot of the like, discourse like so far is, is you saying, no, uh, these ayahs actually do do that. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people don't see it. Like, what do you think that is? So, uh, no, I do think there's a lot of eyes that are very difficult. Uh, uh, and I think it's fair to regard them as difficult. Uh, uh, you know, very soon, so probably if not tomorrow, then the next day we're going to be getting to Aya 34, you know, which is a big struggle for a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of women in particular, men less so, but for a whole lot of women in particular, because that's the beating Aya. And, but I mean, that's not how it should be remembered. But uh, uh, so uh, I do think uh, Islam does compel the the believer, no matter where they are, to wrestle with a lot of things about themselves. Maybe Abu Bakr is the rare exception. Ali might be the rare exception of someone who just goes right in and you know goes right in head first and embraces everything. I think all the rest of us, there are different things that we wrestle with, you know, and I think that is part of the journey of faith because that is cleaning out things within our own hearts. And in theory, you know, one of the points you, those of you, all of you taking classes with me before, we're looking at everything through the lens of Al-Fatiha. And so if I'm looking through the lens of Al-Fatiha, I have to look at all the difficult ayahs and have the conviction that there's Rahma here. There's Rahma pouring here. And that includes ayahs like this or ayahs about war, that there is Rahma pouring here. Or Rahma or ayahs about very, very serious punishments, there is Rahma pouring here. And then, inshallah, I will find it. Make sense? Yeah, yeah. You know, I just uh, you know, that was a great uh, explanation. Um, you know, can you 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 often discuss, you know, uh, for us to take the perspective of like Rahma. I was. Uh, you know, what was the last point you said? You, you, I said I often suggest to take the perspective. Uh, the perspective of what? Of Rahma. Of Rahma. Yes. 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 Yeah. We look at. I was actually. Like listening to the discourse on like Persian poetry, and uh, you know we all know the story of like Leila and Majnun, how he was like you know like drunk out of love. You know, in reality, uh, we should all be like, drunk with love, but you know without loss. You know, he was uh, he was kissing the walls because she used to be side of it, but we should be kissing everything around us because. It's a sign of Allah's love towards us. Mm-hmm. I think it's a matter of removing the veil, so so we are truly the drunk with love of Allah. Mm-hmm. I think that's like that's that's hard for people to, I think, to get to experientially, especially like nowadays. But uh, you know, the, I don't know. I guess I have 
the goal in mind is always I think it is. I think it is very easy for a child and very hard for an adult. Yes. Yeah. And because uh, as an adult, you have fifty thousand things pulling you in fifty thousand directions. You have life experiences that you might be reading in a particular way, and they become obstacles against unfettered love for Allah Taala. And then, by extension, for those whom Allah loves like the prophet, like the believers, so forth and so on. And so a way to develop that is the reverse order. If I don't know how to develop love for Allah, maybe the prophet, peace upon him. If I don't know how to develop love for the prophet, peace upon him, then those whom, meaning, if I don't know how to develop love for Allah, then those whom Allah loves, like the prophets, peace be upon them. If I don't know how to develop love for them because they're not here, then maybe the their those whom they loved, their companions or their families, if I don't know how to do that, then further, whom do the, the prophets love? It's the ummah, and the ummah is in front of me. And that requires me to reframe how do I look at the ummah? Do I, can I develop love for the ummah? That's right in front of me. If I can develop love for the ummah, and I can, it's a choice, then that can lead me to develop love for the others that the prophet loved, like the sahaba. And the family, may Allah be pleased with them, which can then lead me to love for the Prophet, peace be upon him, which then can lead me to love for Allah. Make sense? Yeah, and you know, uh, that's one of the, the, the mechanisms of the Tzilsila, right? You, you, yeah. you, know, you love people, you love people, you know, you love the Prophet. Exactly. You know me, always bring it back. Yeah, always brings it back to the Sufis. Yeah, Alhamdulillah. Okay. Alrighty, any other questions, thoughts, reflections? So I'm cautious about getting further into this as uh, um, a half discussion. Malahat. I have a general question that um, like some of the some of the ayah is very prescriptive, very clear, right? Like the yeah. one just read. And some of the ayahs are like not the mutashabihat, but the, you know, some requires like some more explanation from prophet or the faith and everything so just just a thought came to the mind that you know that means that Allah SWT know that you know that we can the, the with the time and when the time pass and then you know we can we can do the definition or explore more ideas or understanding about the specific ayah in the time and space so i think that that can be a valid argument to having like the tafsir on every time and space, right? Like um, you're saying different tafsir. Different tafsir, yes. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. A way to think about it is one side we call the usul and the furu. Right. And so, yeah, so like the usul would be sort of like the philosophy and the furu would be the conclusions. The so philosophy like, might stay the same, but the conclusions will change. Yeah, like we use, really using our technology word is like MVP, like minimum viable product or the core values right and then there mm -hmm. is some like some like uh, contributing factors so some is like a best practice or like guarding you know the guardrails or like the guideline the, the mm -hmm. principle cannot be changed right and some mm -hmm. of the principles are contributing which yes. can be changed based upon the business model based upon the time based upon the location uh, the condition like covid changed the whole supply chain and retail world and this and that so mm -hmm. 
I was just trying to make like a link between this. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's the famous example of Imam Shafi'i, right? Uh, when he goes to Egypt, he changes as much as two-thirds of his conclusions because it was a different culture. Right. And that was in his lifetime. Imagine, you know, 1,200 years later. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Absolutely, inshallah. What will not change? The basic beliefs will not change and the ibadah will not change. Right? The ibadah will stay, inshallah, the same. Alrighty, any other questions, thoughts, reflections? Nothing else, inshallah. Okay, so tomorrow, inshallah, we will speak more about the consumption of wealth. And then we will return a little bit more to marriage questions. Ahant. Yes, uh, I had just a general perspective uh, question. Um, uh, you know, we often speak of the first 10 days, the, the, the effect that you know, has on us, second 10 days, and the third 10 days. You often said to me that after the first 10 days, when the fast becomes regular, the, the true aspects of a person's either personality or, or inner flaws start to show. Yes. So this is a time of, of deep reflection. Can you expound on that and somehow relate that back to your field of you know, recovering? Uh, regarding connecting this to what we're recovering, in a way I can. Um, and overall I can't, but there's one way I can, inshallah. So just to, to give the whole picture. So we have the narration. It's not considered to be authentic, but it's still taught as a hikmah that for the first 10 days of Ramadan, period of Rahmah, second 10 days, it's a period of Maghfira. And then after that, the gates of paradise are open. And one way to understand that for those people who are fasting from day one is after about a week and a half of fasting, this period of Rahmah, when shaitan is locked up and everyone is in fasting mode, you are steadily being reduced to your real personality. And then in the second 10 days, which is where we are now, you are in this mode where fasting has sort of stabilized for you. And you are in this period where you can look at what is your real personality? What do you need to work on? Uh, do you have anger issues? Do you have doubt issues? That gets exposed to you at this point. And, and so now you're looking at what you need to, to address. And we get into the final stretch of Ramadan where the gates of paradise are open for you. So now you're deciding, okay, what do I need to do so that I work on this over the course of the next 11 months, fixing maybe even one thing. So when I go to Ramadan again, I get exposed to things that are even deeper to me. And then I go through the cycle again, and I get exposed to things that are even deeper. Now, how does that play out? Uh, I mean, in the past couple of days, I've had all kinds of students coming to the office just really sad. I have no friends. You'd be surprised how many students have come to me in the past this week who've just been talking about how they have no friends. And, you know, or they're sad or upset about this, and usually they're happy people. And the point I lead them to is, okay, this is a phase of Ramadan where it's not a coincidence it's happening to you right now. You had no friends three weeks ago either. Now you're really realizing you have no friends. And so this also relates to uh, how we approach what is in the Quran. Uh, if 
I am struggling with the Quran in terms of meaning content, especially in these phases. That's telling me something about what my Iman I need to work on. If I did not start fasting on the first day, uh, either because uh, a woman's going through her period or I'm traveling or sick or whatever, then start from wherever and apply both sides. You know, how you feel now, because shaitan has still been locked up since day one, but especially how you felt after about a week and a half of fasting. And if you're someone not fasting at all, perhaps out of pregnancy or whatever the case may be, still you evaluate yourself because shaitan has been locked up. So the thoughts you have right now are all you. So same thing. How do you react to, how do you engage with the Quran these days and the content? Do you find yourself having resistance? The fundamental question about deen is where do you have resistance? Zid, what we often translate as stubbornness. Make sense? Uh, yeah, so how would you define in terms of like you know, like resistance? Like how does that like uh, feel in the heart or, or feel it feels in the mind? Like, you... It feels like resistance, like you want to push away. Like, mm -hmm. or you... You there's something holding you back from just jumping all in. So a way to do that is compare it to something else where you can easily jump all in. Not even necessarily in the Quran. You know, it could be a giant vat of rasmalai. I don't know, but uh, whatever the case may be, uh, look for where the resistances are in your heart. But it feels like, you know, you're putting up a wall you don't want uh, to go further. Make sense? Yes. Inshallah. And yeah, this point in these ayahs, Allah wants ease for you, Allah wants ease for you, Allah wants ease for you, is a point to, to consider. It's being said over and over again. No friends because friends not inviting for iftar here. I'm on campus all day long. You're all invited to iftar here. You know, we have iftar every single day. And Taravi, Tadawi, uh, 30, uh, 30, uh, 20 rakats. Alrighty, no other questions, thoughts, reflections? Okay, oh, you know you know who comes for, for iftar? Uh, Basit, uh, what's his name's daughter? Uh, Shiraz's daughter. She comes here, yeah. In any case, we will stop here. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashhadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. May Allah Ta'ala reward you all, and we will see you, inshallah, tomorrow. Hopefully, you'll have on cameras. You'll be full of energy and participatory. Okay. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.